You are listening to Problematic Radio. I'm chilled. What is the nature of power? What does it look like? How does it manifest? Who are the people who have it? And where do those people, the people who have power, live? Is our capital, the seat of American power, really Washington, D.C.? And in what sense exactly? It's not where our wealth comes from. It's not where our media lives. D.C. is not the seat of education or commerce and of particular importance to this discussion. It is not where technology comes from. I'm Catherine Boyle. I've been investing for, gosh, about three or four years now. And before that, I spent a great deal of time in Washington, which I think makes me a little different than a lot of people in Silicon Valley. So Catherine's an investor at General Catalyst and one of my favorite people to talk to ex-reporter for the Washington Post. She's got a unique background for San Francisco, kind of part media, part government, part tech. And a while back now, she wrote a piece called Shadow Capital. Who is really in charge? What is really our government? And how exactly should the powerful govern? I think legislative power, so like the actual government, is you know obviously a kind of power. It's power, that's real power. In a lot of cases, and now I'm thinking of you know everything that's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's not even clear where the extent of that power is. The right to assembly, for example, you know, like to gather out in public with people, that constitutional right, is that still a thing? Because it does not seem like it is. Education is a fount of power too. The media is absolutely a power. And these are powers I think chiefly concerned with the truth, and how to shape it. Politics and a democracy can only really exist downstream of what the average person believes. The power to shape belief is therefore a power over our world. I think that particular power in our culture at this time is basically corrupted. And had Catherine and I recorded this podcast a little more recently, that's something I would have pushed back on much harder in our conversation here. The role of media and how it covers, you know, quote, power. But today our main focus is the tech industry. Because yes, absolutely, that is a fount of tremendous power. And it's a power that's growing, that will continue to grow, that actually needs to grow if we as a free society have any chance whatsoever to compete with the totalitarian foreign powers abroad, all of which are applying technology to their push for further influence and further dominance around the world. You know, something I wish the people at the New York Times would do is ask the people of Taiwan if they're more mad at Facebook or China. But if our most powerful American institutions are in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco, if this is a shadow capital, the shadow capital of the U.S. What are the rules? From Nation Factory, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Problematic. But what we're talking about today, shadow capitals. Shadow capitals, yes. Uh, you wrote this piece that I loved quite a while ago now, and I wanted to bring you in and talk about some of these themes. I mean, there is the capital of the country, Washington, D.C., but I think you know, throughout time, the question has always been in every country, where is the power actually? And what does that power look like? I, I moved to Silicon Valley five years ago after spending a long time in Washington. I still think I'm a creature of Washington. I think wherever you come of age, you're sort of a creature of that environment. And so I came here, had traveled around the world, had lived in various places, and had experienced the worst culture shock that I've ever felt in my life. It felt like even though I was in my own country, nothing seemed like what I had experienced before. The people were different. They thought about things differently. The language was different. The types of technology products that people use were different. Uh, and so I've been thinking about this sort of this 
gulf between Washington and Silicon Valley for a while now. And one of the things that's really come to a head is just how so many companies are usurping what are called like classical civic duties of government and have sort of usurped the power that you would have expected government to have over time. I I kind of have been thinking about this concept of shadow capitals or, or cities that have more power than you would expect them to have and that operate in ways where they are usurping the functions of government. And they've existed throughout history. They're not new. But Silicon Valley operating as a shadow capital is a little different than the ones we've seen before. What are some historical examples of shadow capitals? Let's work into it, you know, starting at the past. Yeah, so a, a historical example would be something like weak states in Central America at the turn of the century. New Orleans was in effect a shadow capital because United Fruit was headquartered there. And when you look at the the countries that uh, United Fruit was operating in um, from Guatemala to to Honduras, those weak states did not have nearly as much power as, say, New Orleans. And what's interesting is that United Fruit was actually hired to manage the postal service of Honduras. To have a private company doing that for a weak state is, is not something we would expect today. But it's actually pretty common to see companies throughout history actually doing the civic duties of, of countries. To a certain extent, this happened. Didn't this happen in uh, with the East India Company in India? Yeah, I mean, that, that would be another example where these companies actually are taking on certain authorities that we, we would, as Americans living today, think that's a duty of government. We definitely saw it in our own country. It's not just in operating in other countries throughout history. We saw it in the turn of the century where the trusts in New York were far more powerful than Washington. Washington was much more of a backwater until the 20th century. And you actually saw presidents like Teddy Roosevelt going after these companies using antitrust because they were too powerful and they were taking too much of the responsibility I mean, through I, economic authority. I think just broadly, before we get into sort of, I guess, the specifics of which functions of our government are being replaced by corporations, I was having a conversation with a journalist, with a, I won't say who, but he's very funny, <laughs> um, but also like definitely to the left of me, pretty far to the left of me. We were talking about the Christian right, I made a comment saying, you know, it's like, there is no Christian right anymore. They're completely, that movement, whatever it was, is maybe it hits the height of its power under the Bush era, but who even is the Christian right anymore? I was saying they're not as powerful as the tech community. Specifically, I was talking about like social media. And this guy, you know, hops into my mentions and he's like, this is stupid. And he goes off about Mike Pence, the vice president. And I was just like, wait, do you really honestly believe that Mike Pence is more powerful than Jeff Bezos, it's just there's no question yeah. that uh, there's no question of who is more influential right now. I think throughout history, you could say like, oh, well, rich people are powerful. But in the context of Silicon Valley, it's not just money, right? Yeah, it's also it's, just like the mecha- it's like the way with which we interact with the world now is yeah. controlled from this region. And the speed at which you can build that kind of authority has rapidly accelerated. I mean, I think there's there's two great differences between how Silicon Valley acts as a shadow capital and say New York at the turn of the century or any of these other types of ones we can point through in history. The first is that technology is the accelerant. If you look at Uber, which has in some ways radically transformed the transportation industry for government. I mean, when you look at just public infrastructure, Uber and Lyft have dramatically changed how cities operate. That was built in 10 years. Like the, a lot of these other shadow capitals took decades, maybe centuries to build uh, because it was an amalgamation of capital and, and they're, they're, they're building in a way that is more in line with kind of how we think of traditional capital being allocated if you're trying to influence government through lobbying, through using economic authority. Companies now can say we're at the scale where we actually don't need to work with government. Um, and that's, I think, one of the interesting dangers of what's happened with the Silicon Valley shadow capital is that you can amalgamate authority 
very, very quickly and then decide whether or not you're going to operate in some of these civic needs. So a good example that I talked about in the piece is Google and the kind of controversy around whether they'll work with the Department of Defense. There is an argument that Google is probably the only company or one of the few companies at scale that has the AI talent needed to work with the Department of Defense. And if Google says we're not going to work with the Department of Defense because a small group of engineers say, you know, we, we don't want to be doing that, that means that the government actually doesn't have access to the talent it needs to perform the functions that it believes it needs. That's interesting as well to think of things in terms of almost a competition between the government and the private sector for talent. Mm-hmm. And the government right now just can't compete. Yeah, there's, there's no way. I mean, yeah, if you're not working with Google, then good luck building your own AI program. Yeah, that I think is one of the things that also makes this era very different. Governments are always going to have to compete with public and, and, and or corporate interests. But the idea that very, very few talented people that are building for technology want to go into government that's a problem because if they're if they're only going to companies, which we've seen, you know, by and large across sectors, that that's going to change how people operate in terms of what they're building, and then the the people who are making the decisions about who they're going to be working with changes as well. Where do you see where where are the different sort of tension points between which sectors of the government and which companies do you do you see this like most pronounced this dynamic of corporations taking over, sort of, so to speak? Well, I mean, there, there's a number of them. I mean, one of the most prominent examples that we just mentioned is, is Uber and Lyft and sort of transportation changing dramatically. One of the things that's been talked about is, of course, that they've, you know, Uber and Lyft have destroyed the medallion system, but they've also replaced a lot of the revenue coming in from public transport. Mm-hmm. You talk to any major city in America and they'll say most, a lot of people who used to take the bus are now taking Uber and Lyft and yeah, that's I... changed the revenue stream for, for the city. But I think you can look at other examples where it's not even just a competition. It's like there are some companies that can do things that government can't even do. And I'd point to there's been a, a, a large investment in companies that are doing private surveillance. So people are putting really cheap cameras on their houses, on their businesses to survey um, different areas for security purposes. And when you think of physical surveillance, whether it be in a neighborhood or whether it be out in front of someone's house, the government can't do that. Like the government could not put a camera up in front of your house without a huge legal battle. But if you decide to do it as a private citizen, that's your prerogative. So the companies that ultimately reach scale in the sector are actually going to have more power to surveil than the government itself. Yeah, to surveil and to censor. We see this in the context of social media pretty much, like I would say almost constantly, this is coming up now. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a handful of people in Silicon Valley from the same position of, I would say, class, the same educational background, the same sort of ethos broadly, who are determining what people can and cannot say across the world. Mm -hmm. They don't have to worry about the First Amendment. And you see all these conversations on Twitter where people are like, you can't censor me. It's the First Amendment. It's like, well, legally, they definitely can. This is uh, a private company that you don't have to use. I think where it becomes an interesting question, though, is do you actually have to use it? I don't think that you could run a successful presidential campaign if you aren't on Facebook. Yeah. So if that's the case, if these few social media companies have swallowed up, in a way, the entire public square, and that's really the thing that people keep saying, the public square, the public square, the public square. But is that is it true? If it's true, if there isn't a way to successfully disseminate information outside of these platforms, have we lost, in a sense, our First Amendment? Does it really matter that the government's protecting our right to you know, go out on the corner and hand pamphlets out? 
if you can't use the internet. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that you said there that's really interesting is all of these people come from a similar background and they're running the companies. But what's really interesting about some of these protests within Google and within Amazon and a lot of companies is that it's not the executives who are making the decision. It's a small group of people who are pseudo-anonymous in many ways. Like, we're not seeing the people who are leading the rallying cry inside companies to not work with government or to, to change the course of a certain product. And so that's what's really interesting is not only is are people making decisions about very important civic functions who are unelected, but these aren't even the people who are running the company in many contexts. Right. They're people who work at the company. And I would say in the context of Google specifically, I mean, you definitely see that it's like, this is a company that has more influence than perhaps, I mean, any other company in history. And there doesn't seem to be a strong leader in charge of that place. And even if there, even if there were, I mean, I think you can, you can point to companies where there have been uh, groups of people who protested and the executive board or the executive team has said, we're actually going to work with government or we're going to continue on this process. It causes huge controversy within the company. The executive has to be thinking, do we want to lose these engineers? Is it worth the problem that we're going to have to go through publicly? Like, there's just a lot of, a lot of issues that I think an executive has to think about now. That not it's it's what what is my duty to the civic sphere, but then also what is my duty to the people who are working here? It's a very interesting balance that executives has are facing now, and many of them are are not leading the charge on where the products and and where these these ideas are going. What's well, tricky? I think the first thing that you have to do is accept how much power you have, and I mean, if you do that. You're sort of inviting the Elizabeth Warrens of the world to come knocking at your door, well, yes. talking about regulation yes. and dismemberment of the corporation. Yeah, and this is this is this is the core issue. Where I think there's a lot of companies that aren't talking about this power is that, as I've as I said, like we've seen shadow capitals throughout history, and what always happens is it's a pendulum swinging back and forth. We had a very weak Washington at the turn of the century, and it became much stronger over the course of a century. And in the 1980s, you know, there's a lot of arguments that decentralization started happening there with Ronald Reagan and that, uh, that there was a privatization of government that he sort of spearheaded. And it was happening across the world. Denationalization was something that was happening, you know, in, in the Soviet Union. It was happening for the, the last UK. 50 years. In the UK, absolutely. So it's, these are, this is a trend that's been happening. And what I think we are seeing is technology has accelerated that trend. And you're now seeing lawmakers in Washington waking up to the fact that They've lost a lot of power, and it's going to be very difficult to compete with the people who have technology that, you know, a small group of people that have some have one mission can kind of unbundle something that's ha- that government has taken care of for, for centuries. We haven't really talked much about the goodness or badness of this. I'm wondering, I mean, why does it matter that the government's losing power? Maybe it is. Maybe it's great. Well, it, Welcome to my libertarian fantasies. Yeah, well, no, so it's, it, it's interesting because I think I've been looking at it more from the investment lens of you can look at it as good or bad, but it's happening. It is a phenomena and it's happened historically. I, I don't see it changing anytime soon because the gulf between the technology that lawmakers have access to is very different than the, the kind of technology that Silicon Valley has access to. But I think in some cases it can be very good and we don't talk about this. I mean, if you're looking at weak states like Venezuela or places that are despotic, it's actually really good that a group of people can use technology to build something that solves civic needs. You know, there's the argument that cryptocurrency and the decentralization that's happening there is actually very good for weak states that need that kind of security. Yeah, there's there's sort of no, in a world where almost everybody has a smartphone, 
we're very close to a world in which it's impossible for a government like Venezuela to reemerge and completely devalue a currency. Um, everybody would just immediately leave. Yeah. You know, you find something else that's more stable. Government can't really track it. Did Bitcoin make communism impossible? Like, I, I think it might have. I think that we, we haven't really seen a strong enough push for that, yeah. the complete sort of super authoritarianism that a communist state would take. Uh, but certainly like right now in America, I don't know that it would be possible. I spent a lot of time sort of fearing the Ocasio left, but I mean, if she got her way and started nationalizing a bunch of shit, she came for the currency. Elizabeth Warren has talked about coming for the currency. And I think to myself, like, you can only really come for it for so long before people just leave. Yeah. We can leave now. We have an exit solution. Yeah. We have an exit plan. And, and that's, I think, the biggest difference that we're seeing now is before there were things that government could do to, to break up monopolies and to change kind of capital structures in these shadow capitals. But we don't see that now. If you try to destroy a technology, someone else will build it. And this is it's also one of the, the, the things that you and I have talked about a lot is that this technology exists. And if we do kind of go to this, you know, we're going to regulate Silicon Valley because we don't want these companies to have the authority they have. There are other shadow capitals in different contexts, like Beijing, uh, and, and other places that can emerge that can use technology in the exact same way. And so that becomes another question of, maybe you don't like the shadow capital that's in your own country and you want to regulate it and you have the power as a government to regulate it. You don't have the power to regulate other shadow capitals that emerge using technology as an accelerant. Right. I'm reading a book right now called The 100-Year Marathon. Have you read this? Read it, it's no. a. It's sort of, it is a, uh, it's written by a, foreign intelligence expert who's been tracking China for decades. And he is speaking to this kind of philosophy among many Chinese people of sort of like biding your time yeah. and winning over a century. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea that, you know, China actually is seeking global dominance to be the emperor. There can't be two suns in the sky, mm -hmm. um, but they're on this hundred year plan to get there. And the and with it, this is like sort of perfectly fine within Chinese culture to sort of not speak much about it, but to quietly work toward it. And whether or not you believe that, I mean, there's a question of like power generally. People in America right now want to, it's like icky. We want to pretend that these dynamics don't exist at all, mm -hmm. that we could all just live completely in peace and no one has to be in charge. And it's like globalism's great and everyone's, it's like consumerism's great. We all have got, we've all got a bunch of really cheap shit and uh the future is that it's like okay. fukuyama's at the end of history or something mm -hmm. but i don't know man i don't think that's true i think power dynamics like you're saying it they're always going to exist there's a question not of will people be in charge it's who will be in charge yeah. and and i think what what we are grappling with now that is different is that you have these power centers that are not democratically elected and that are using something that really can't be undone and that's technology. I mean, it, before, it's like you can always point, I think a lot of people point to, oh, well, you know, the, the robber barons at the turn of the century had the same kind of power and it will always revert. They didn't have technology as a, as a lever where they could operate without the consent of government. Even in the context of China, the, yeah, technology has really changed the game in ways that we refuse to acknowledge. Libertarians love to talk about how the truth wants to be free. And you can't really censor people long term. They don't believe it's it's possible. Like psychologically, it just they don't think that that you can maintain that kind of a thing. Many libertarians don't believe that you can maintain uh, a censorious state. But I look at China and I think, well, they've applied modern day technology to the question of whether or not you can maintain censorship, and it seems to be doing wonderfully well for them. Like that's very scary to me. The degree to which they've been able to work towards 
essentially perfecting totalitarianism with technology they stole from us. One of the things that I, I think is not talked about enough in, in the difference between the U.S. and China, China, I mean, they've operated with state-owned enterprises where the consumer research and development that they've done over the last 30 years, if you want to call it that, is merged with defense. It's merged with the, the state and the kind of con, you know, consumer growth is merged. In our country, technology is not used by government. There's such a gulf between Silicon Valley and Washington in the way that technology is used. And Washington can't say, hey, Silicon Valley, work with us. Like they can't tell, there are no state-owned enterprises where you can say, we are going to make you work on this function of government to improve the lives of our citizens. China can do that. A lot of other countries can do that that have decided to use state-owned enterprises as, as a method of achieving their civic goals. So that's one of the ways where I think when these kind of shadow capitals emerge, there really isn't the power to, to force Silicon Valley to work with Washington on the, the goals that they believe in, whereas other countries have that power. It's weird, especially coming from globalists, to not be thinking about the impact that kneecapping our industry would have on the sort of like global political landscape. Mm -hmm. You can reduce the power of our companies, fine, if you want to do that, okay, go and do that. But we're not living in a world now where we're only competing with ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, our companies now, greatly reduced in power, will be competing with mega companies abroad. Yeah. And certainly with our hands tied behind our back, it doesn't seem like we could really win a fight like that. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is, you know, I, I think, you know, I spend a lot of time in the defense sector. And one of the greatest things that we have at our disposal as a country is capitalism. And, and I'm constantly telling people in, in the Defense Department, you know, it's, if you want Silicon Valley companies to work with you, you need to pay them. <laughs> give, give them large contracts. Yeah. Large contracts will actually change the way that, that companies will be very excited to work with you if you get them through a procurement process as quickly and easily as possible and you pay them a lot of money. Um, so I, I think there's often we, we look at you know, countries that, that have state-owned enterprises and we say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if the government could say, like, this is something we really, really care about and we, we want to encourage the best and the brightest to work with us. Like, you can definitely do that. You just have to make it easier to work with government through paying companies. I think about that in terms of even just the government. Again, this is like a sort of not a very libertarian idea, but I often think we should just be paying government employees like three times as much as we're currently paying them so we could start actually attracting talented people. I look at our board of supervisors in San Francisco and I think our biggest problem is not that this particular group of supervisors is, I mean, they're either the dumbest people alive or they're truly evil. I tend to think they're just very stupid. Um, that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we're not incentivizing smart people to replace them. It's our biggest problem is that they're, they're always going to be stupid. There's no reason for a smart person to join this job. It's like, I, let's just, let's reduce the government size by like two thirds and pay everybody left three times as much money. Let's just like start there. It, you know, and, it, and it's interesting to see whether that would work because I think it, it has gotten, and I, you know, I, I think a lot about why it's gotten worse, but it has gotten worse over the last, say, 10, 20 years. A good example of this is if you look at any of the three-letter agencies in Washington. They used to view a university like George, uh, George Washington University or Georgetown University that is very much known for its foreign affairs program as feeder schools. They would recruit the best and the brightest out of those schools, and that was considered like the top job. If you could get a job at the CIA or the NSA, that's fantastic. And now they're seeing that none of those people want to work for them anymore. That if they have the choice to work for the CIA or they have the choice to work for Palantir or another private company that's going to pay them 
three or four times as much money, give them equity, and also allow them to work on important issues that they care about, you're, you're seeing the best and the brightest students go to the private sector versus government. And, and part of me wonders if, if it's not just a monetary issue, but it's actually an issue where like the glory of public service that we used to have as a country is no longer something that people look at yep. as valuable. People don't really believe that America is good. This is a theme that we've talked about on this show quite a bit. Not quite something I thought I was going to be talking about a lot, but it keeps coming up. Yeah, we just don't. Um, Americans have lost their faith in God and their faith in America. We've sort of completely polarized because the only thing that we believe in now is our narrow political ideas, right? We're super tribalistically wed to the left or the right, but we don't think much about, yeah, what it means to be an American anymore. And and so if you don't have that, why why would you want to serve it? You yeah, know? But, but, but it's interesting because even people who, and, and, and I wonder if this has something to do with sort of the, the social media you know, throngs that we've created, even people who I think are very wedded to an ideology. So say you're someone who is incredibly liberal or incredibly conservative and very much supports a party line. It's enough to just tweet about it. And, and that's sort of your public service right. of today. Like yeah. you can have a very high paying job in, in technology and be very politically active and talk about, you know, certain things online and that's enough. Whereas before, I mean, I think our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, there was this view that like you have to sacrifice in some ways. And most of the time that was monetary sacrifice. Like you have to serve your country in some way. And I don't think that, I mean, it's probably post-Vietnam when it really started happening. I don't think we have that view anymore that you have to serve. Well, I think I mean, it's two. It was like post-Vietnam is when the erosion, I think, of our American self-love began. But there was a bit of a resurgence of it in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I think after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we no longer had an enemy abroad that was actually frightening. I think we just got soft and started fighting in, amongst ourselves. And here we are. It, it's, it's like things were too good. There was no enemy. The economy was doing basically pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so here we are. Yeah. Here, here we are. It's like, we, what is it in Game of Thrones? Oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> um, how do you think the power structures, Silicon Valley, are going to continue? Are the powers going to increasingly coalesce? Is there going to be some sort of significant challenge? Or what does the future of the shadow capital look like? One of the things that I think we've seen, you know, Uber is I think the case I keep going back to, we're seeing cities have woken up. And I think the, the federal government has also woken up like we actually need to work with tech companies because we can't build this in-house. Like that's that's something I constantly hear with with the companies that I work with. And I do think founders are more eager to work with government because sort of the old playbook of running over government doesn't necessarily work as well. Um, but I, I think it'll be very difficult for sort of the traditional antitrust mechanisms of breaking up companies to work with technology companies. Why is that? Be- because I think you can continue to build without government's consent. Um, and if you break up a company, yes, another one will emerge. But it, it does, as I said before, it doesn't take 30 years to create this kind of extreme power over a certain sector anymore. It takes five years. And particularly with just how we've seen you know, venture capital go from a cottage industry to, because of low interest rates, this real industry that is funding a lot of companies, I think you're just going to see a, a, a faster accelerant on how big these companies can get. Um, what is your take right now on the whole China-Google thing? I think it's something that people just haven't thought about, that you think, okay, we're, we're working with another country and, and that's totally fine. But I think a lot of, unless you are really 
in national security circles, you haven't thought about the fact that the Chinese government owns companies. Right. Like, yeah. like you haven't yeah. thought about that <laughs> There fact. is no free enterprise um, in China. And, and it's a totalitarian country, and yeah. they have spies everywhere. And when they don't have spies, they can just call you in and say, give me the information, or you're going to die. How many billionaires have been executed in China? And I don't think that many Americans have been thinking about kind of the implications of the Defense Department wanting to make this transition to AI. You know, I think this is finally something that the, the Defense Department has talked about publicly and that Silicon Valley is now now spending a lot more time on, that this is a core competency of the military. Like, this is something that is going to change how warfare works, how defense works, that artificial intelligence is actually incredibly important in this sector. And if you're working with five primes that were created in the 1920s, if you're working with companies that that do not have those capabilities that are that are building for a totally different century, you're not going to be able to compete with countries that that don't have a distinction between public and private. I talked to Palmer Lucky once. Palmer, obviously, huge patriot, loves this country, but he brought up the point: we are at a huge disadvantage because we are not a totalitarian country because we can't force people to help us build. This is the price of freedom, mm -hmm. is we have to find ways to convince people to work with us. Yeah. And that's great, that's beautiful, that is what we are fighting for. Freedom is my core value, it's what I care most about, is liberty. Um, yeah, but how do you how do you compete with people who do not care about that? Yeah. That's a scary question. Yeah, no, and, and, and I go back to, we are a capitalist country, and the federal government spends $500 billion a year on contracting. A lot of that goes to five primes, and you know you you, you can pay for the things that you want. Uh, we have, that's why we're taxed. Like that's why you know that we we pay taxes so that, that we can have these sorts of services. And so I do think that the government needs to start thinking of itself as you know a funding allocator that really needs to look at core competencies that they need, versus kind of the same old same old where we've worked with people before and it's worked. So so that's great. I mean, the, I, what I will say about the Defense Department is that. They are talking a lot about this. Like this is something, and, and actually doing things. So I think in 2015, the Defense Department actually introduced a new type of contracting vehicle to work with startups because there is the realization internally that we do not have the capabilities we need. We want bleeding edge technology, and we need to pay for it. And the the feedback that the Defense Department has has gotten is that you know you take way too long to make decisions. And so they've created contracting vehicles that can allow a company to be funded in 30 days. And I think that's a good first step. It's a great first step for small startups to, to get a taste of what it's like to work with the Department of Defense. But ultimately, if you want companies to exist in perpetuity and to serve these needs, you're going to have to write big checks. And you're going to have to, to, to move fast and, and take a little bit more risk on the fact that these are bleeding edge technologies. Um, and that's something that I, I think we'll see in the coming coming decade. So technology industry, just going to, it's going to keep increasing in power? Or do we see some rollback of some kind. I just think the technology industry is something that's going to be like a thing of the past. You know, like that, that it's an actual industry. Mm -hmm. It's like every company is a tech company. Any company that exists in perpetuity or any company that actually becomes large in the next 10 years, 20 years is going to be a tech company and at its heart. will not necessarily be based in Silicon Valley. So does the power just increasingly decentralize? That's a fair point. Like it, it could, but I don't I don't buy that Silicon Valley is not going to be powerful over the short-term horizon. Maybe the 100, 200-year horizon, like, but, but over the short term, 
I've still seen so many people come to Silicon Valley to start their companies. It's it's the funding center. So even if you're starting, I, I'm a firm believer that you can start a great company anywhere, and that even decentralized companies and companies where you know there's multiple offices or multiple people working across the world, I, I'm a firm believer that those companies can be massive. But this is still the funding capital, and so people still come here to meet with investors. I think that Silicon Valley in the short term will still maintain its power because of that. Well, if that's the case, then if Silicon Valley is going to maintain its power, perhaps even increase its power, what, are, what is the moral framework with which people should be governing here? I mean, one of the big confusions of the things like, you know, the social media censorship or the Uber Lyft stuff in the city, like the reason people are so frustrated is because we have people namely technologists exerting power on the country, but in a very sort of unclear, murky way. We don't know what the rules are. What should the rules be? How should they govern? I think they should govern with transparency. And that sounds like a soundbite, but I, I think you see, you know, as we've talked about, no one wants to talk about the, the power that these companies have. I mean, every startup that I meet with, I ask about the morals of the company. What, what is the mission of the company? What is your theory of the future? And like, what are the, what are the specific things that you believe are going to happen? And how are you going to govern? Like, I think those are important questions. And for a while, no one was asking that. It was just, as I, as I said before, the, the biggest culture shock, the, the difference between Washington and Silicon Valley. I think Silicon Valley is incredibly micro. It's how do you get to the next step? How do you build this product? The, the macro questions of what do you believe? What are you building it for? Where are you headed? It's actually pretty rare to meet people who've thought through all of those steps of where a company can go. Well, they don't think through them, but they certainly pay lip service to them. I think the mission-oriented company is that's like how people recruit. As they say, they're like these good people. This was certainly Google's thing for years. But is it real? Right. Are you actually being transparent about what you are actually doing? And so I think that companies should be more transparent. When I hear my former journalist you know, or, or my former journalist colleagues talk about how hard it is to work with tech, that's what they're talking about about how every company in Silicon Valley says that it's changing the world and pays lip service to all of these big notions. But like, what are you actually doing is not something that people are willing to talk about. And I, I think that will no. ultimately be and what's I do, needed. It, it will ultimately be what? What's needed. Yeah. And I do think, um, I mean, I think when you say you're going to change the world, that could be a very scary thing if you're not telling us exactly how you planned on changing it. Absolutely. Like, we need to know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we and, all and, need to know that. And, and something I've, I've, I've kind of watched having experience in both sides is just this kind of outright, I don't want to say hatred, but disgust of technologists with the media and vice versa. There's a widening gulf right. between those two parties. And I do think it comes down to, for a decade, Silicon Valley has said, we're so good, we're so good, we're so good, without talking about the actual steps they're taking with this sort of power that's been built over the I mean, I would unpack that a little bit and I would slightly push back. I mean, I think that the media stuff is also a matter of technology companies destroyed the old media business model, one. So people are mad about that, even though they're not talking about it. That's extremely why most journalists, I think, are mad. They're mad that Facebook has so much power over the dissemination of, of their work too. It's made it so anyone can kind of be a writer. Um, That's true. Know, anyone, anyone can be a writer. Anyone. Yes. I often wonder why people in the technologies industry talk to journalists at all at this point. With They have such a history of, I would say, almost lying about what we're doing. Listen, I get, I get that there is power in Silicon Valley. That power needs to be held accountable. It should be any government, any shadow government should be transparent. I agree with you. But I think that I just don't really think that 
the majority of journalists have approached these questions in good faith. I think that they think that they're attacking like the Death Star or something. Well, well, it's it's interesting because I, I I sympathize with the view, and and we see this a lot with government officials that it's really hard to know how tech companies function if you haven't been in one. In the same way that it's you know it's really hard to know how, how journalists function if you haven't been yeah. in a newsroom. But I do think that there is a lack of tech literacy in government that you also see in a lot of what's happening in the media. Uh, one of the things that shocks me the most is that the media used to be very forward thinking on technology. And five years ago when I was, was still at the Washington Post, people were really excited about technology. And now there's just sort of this like incredibly dim, dark view of where technology is headed. And that to me is scary because that's a more so than even like the business model being disrupted or, you know, skepticism of who's leading these tech companies. It's just this like very sad view of dystopia. Well, they have a sad view, I think, of humanity because you see it in every kind of reporting right now. But I think, yeah, it's like a it's a sort of philosophy of people are bad. And so, of course, big companies, which are filled with people, are going to be doing bad things. I think I have questions about the power of a journalist or a writer. I had a reporter come into the office at my job and talk a little bit about just reporting on our companies. We're kind of just getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. And she was very committed to the idea that technology companies owed her a response to her queries for information. And at first I really resisted the idea. I was like, what are you talking like, How? Who do you think you are? That you can just like demand information from anyone that you want. These are private citizens. And she's like, yes, but they're exerting tremendous power, and I didn't elect them. Who? She's like, she asked me the question. She goes, who elected them? And I thought, okay, that's interesting and true. And I hadn't thought about it that way before. But then I looked at her and I thought, who elected you? Who gave you this power? Like, who are you to be asking these questions? Who made you the arbiter of truth? Who made you the person who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? I think that the media needs to to sort of ask some of these questions of itself. I mean, who elected them? I would say there's a huge burden to be a journalist today. One, in terms of you have to be seeking truth, you have to be asking the right questions, but you're right. Like you you have, the, the power of the pen has always been an extraordinary power. I will say, I often joke when I first moved to the Valley, one of the biggest things that I realized was that people don't respond to your emails. <laughs> like I had only ever been a journalist in my life. And so, you know, with the full force of the Washington Post behind you, people respond to your emails because they don't want to say no comment on the record. Moving out here and realizing that actually people don't actually want to have anything to do with me. They just wanted to have to do with the Washington Post or to answer those hard questions that, that people people ask from the media. I think, you know, companies will respond when they feel like it's the need to respond. So in the case of this journalist talking to you, if she's very persuasive that it matters that she be answered, she will be answered. What are the aspects of this that are uncomfortable to talk about socially and why do you think they are? So for one, I don't think this is uncomfortable. I mean, for me, it's this is this is history. This has happened throughout the ages. Like the idea that technology is new or that it, it, that it has some sort of, you know, extraordinary power now. Yes, it's accelerating things. Yes, it's this new era where it's really cheap to, to form a startup and, it, and there's, you know, private private capital that can form companies that can can replace a lot of the functions of government like that. That's that seems extraordinary and it is. But at the same time, part of me wonders if we're we're just not looking at it in a broad enough historical lens. And I think if you say that people think, wow, like you're you know, you're, you're not thinking about the fact that these aren't democratically elected officials and that people aren't making the, the decisions in, in a way that, that we're comfortable with. I, 
part, part of me just thinks that we are in an extraordinary inflection point where a lot of civic services, a lot of life is being remade. We're, re, we're, we're making a digital city. And so there's a lot of choices that matter. And I think there's the dystopian view, which we talked about, which is the, you know, the, the view that's very common in the media that this is all going downhill. But there's also a very great view that you can have of what's happening, which is we get to remake cities. We get to remake civic life in a way that could actually help people, that's actually more efficient, that's actually much more in line with modernity. So I think the probably the most uncomfortable thing to say is that you're somewhat excited about where this is going, uh, because that's not a popular view at the moment. But I, I think I'm optimistic that humans have always figured out these inflection points, um, and sometimes they're rough and sometimes they're rocky. I mean, we talk about people who are left behind because of technology, and you know, it's 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 a hard thing to talk about. But technology is often a force of good, and and I'm very excited about where cities and and where government can go because of it. You are listening to Problematic, 